Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. My name is Carl Perkins, and today we are studying Kitupot Daf Yud Tet, that is to say the 19th folio page of Kitupot. Now, during the past few days, we have been looking at the rules of evidence concerning documents like Kitupot that are essentially conditional IOUs. Today, and over the next several days, we'll continue to be looking at the question of authentication. Now, why is this an issue? Uh, Well, the reason is obvious. Only an authentic IOU can be the basis of a claim in court. But there does seem to be an undue amount of attention on this issue on these pages. Why might that be? Well, in ancient days, there weren't registries of deeds or similar documents, as we have today. Uh, Today, certainly in a jurisdiction like uh, the states of uh, the United States of America, uh, jurisdictions have registries of deeds. You can take a document and you can record it in the registry of deeds. If you want to know, for example, who owns a particular parcel of land, you can go to the registry of deeds and look it up. But in the societies in which Jews and frankly others, lived during Talmudic days, such registries simply didn't exist. So in those days, if you were a creditor and you had a note that you wanted to sue on, you'd bring it into court, and the first thing that the court would insist upon is that you authenticate the document. Now, how do you do that? Well, a document would have to have two signatures, so you'd have to authenticate the signatures. And how would you do that? Well, you could bring two people into court who would claim to be the witnesses, or you could bring in previously authenticated documents with their previously authenticated signatures on them, or you could do it in some other way. All of this seems pretty simple. Yet what's not simple is uh, what we looked at yesterday, which is the situation that arises when the witnesses themselves come into court and they are the sole basis for authenticating the document, And then they go on to say something that qualifies or restricts or limits the use of their signatures, or even goes along, goes ahead and invalidates the document as a whole. Now, the general rule is that if those witnesses are the only basis for the court's reliance on those signatures and for the court's determination that that document is valid, then if at the same time that they are authenticating them, They tell the court something about the circumstances under which they signed that note that limits the court's finding, then the court must hear and must accept their testimony as well. The general principle that we have been talking about has a name in Hebrew. It's called Hapeh She'asar Hu Hapeh Shehitir. The literal translation of that is the mouth that confined or the mouth that imprisoned is the mouth that released. Now, that doesn't make much sense in this context. 
a few pages from now, on, on Daf Kaf Bet, on page 22, we'll see what may be the original context for this principle. It goes like this. Imagine that a woman has disappeared for a while. No one knows what happened to her. She then shows up and she states, I was taken captive. Now, that is a grave statement for her to make because that affects her presumed status. If a woman has been taken captive, she is presumed to have been raped by her captives. And the consequences of that are are pretty serious. She's no longer presumed to be a virgin, if she had been before this, and, and therefore she's no longer eligible to marry a Kohen, someone from the priestly line. Now, what if at the same time that she testifies that she had been taken captive and had spent time in captivity, she claims that she was not violated at all? Well, if that happens, then the court is required to accept that testimony as well. And the reason? The mouth that imprisoned her, the mouth that confined her, that testified essentially against her, that's the mouth that releases her as well. We're going to see uh, several examples of this principle in the pages ahead. On the page that uh, we're studying today, Daf Yud Tet, page 19, we read of three different kinds of notes that, because they might cause problems, are viewed with considerable concern. The first is called a shtar amana, a deed of trust. This is a promissory note written actually before the loan it describes has been made. Now, sometimes for practical purposes or to move a deal along, it's in the interest of both parties to write and to witness even the execution of such a note. But it's obviously a dangerous note because if the loan is never made, it certainly should not be the basis of a suit. Now, the second kind is called a shtar pasim. It's unclear exactly what a shtar pasim is. It would seem, according to Rashi, a later rabbinic commentary from the, ninth, from the 11th century, it would seem to be a deed drawn up to make the wealthier seem wealthy. Apparently, it's not for the purpose of committing fraud, just in order to increase that person's esteem in the community. But still, it's obviously very dangerous. A third kind of problematic note is actually uh, one that might not have occurred to any of us. It's one that has already been paid off, a shtar parua. Now, that's dangerous for obvious reasons. Let's say a shtar parua, a note that's already been paid on, is found in a person's papers by his heirs. Now, they may not know that it's already been paid, and so they may come into court and demand payment by the, by the debtor, even though the note was already paid. Now, again, even though there might be good reasons why each of these notes might be drafted, or in the case of the shtar parua, the paid note, why it might, in fact, be kept in the home of the creditor, the Talmud teaches us here that they should not be kept in one's home. And the proof text is a verse from the book of Job. The verse goes like this, Im aven biadcha harchi kehu. If iniquity should be in your hand, put it far away, and let not righteousness dwell in your tents. Uh, I think you can see how this is interpreted metaphorically or midrashically in this context. 
if iniquity is found in your hand, in other words, if you've got this note that can lead to sin, that can lead to an unjust result, you shouldn't keep it in your home. It should not be around. It it hurts the whole system, and it can destroy the confidence with which the legal system administers the law of credit and debt. It should be put away. All this from a verse in the book of Job. Uh, Over the next couple of days, we'll learn more about the rules of authenticating promissory notes and bills of sale in general, and Kitabot in particular. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.